This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 78, August the 29th, 1984. First of all, I'd like to call your attention to an article that uh, first appeared in Parade on January 15th of this year and was reprinted recently by the Thomas Jefferson Research Center newsletter. It is James Webb's What We Can Learn from ja Japan's Prisons. The article is about the Fushu Prison near Tokyo, where 2,500 of Japan's most hardened criminals are kept. One man who spent some time there was Ed Arnett, who was put in on a narcotics charge. He still bears uh, scars on his legs from the frostbite he picked up in his Fushu cell. It was a nine by five foot cell with a hard, narrow bed, a sink, and a toilet that he could only flush when the guards permitted it. His mail was censored and he was not allowed writing materials. Only a few books were allowed him and gifts for home were kept from him until his release. His diet was seaweed, fish, and rice, and he lost 55 pounds in 18 months. Well, his scalp, by the way, was shaved every two weeks, and he was forbidden to look out the window or to communicate with other men inmates. He worked eight hours a day making paper bags. He could not touch his bunk during the day. But when the lights went out at night, he had to lie down or be punished. Because he had diabetes, when he went in, an American doctor called him when he came out a walking dead man. Arnett is now in his home in Omaha, Nebraska, but he says he prefers Japan's legal system to ours, and the reason is because it's fair. And he said that uh, at every point, the tre treatment, while severe, was thoroughly fair. It certainly was discouraging to crime. In 1981, Japan, with about half our population, had only 922 homicides, whereas New York City had 1,832, so that the likelihood of an American being murdered or raped or robbed is far, far greater than in Japan. Now, he went on to say that while the prison system is very harsh, it is also stern and justly so. And his statement was, Japan plays it above board all the way. They don't coddle anyone, neither do they abuse them. Moreover, there are no escape attempts. They know that they're going to be dealt with severely, and they know that they're going to be caught and returned. Moreover, in one instance, when during an earthquake the walls of one of the Japanese prisons did fall down, no one escaped. If the Japanese prisoners would leave because the prison was a shambles, they would just go home and wait to be picked up. 
Arnett, as a result, says that he wishes we had a system like that of Japan. It does not encourage crime, and it treats the criminal sternly, but justly. Now to a totally different subject. One of the books I read uh, this past weekend, first published in 1982 in uh, England, University of Cambridge Press, is Brian Tierney, T-I-E-R-N-E-Y, Religion, Law, and the Growth of Constitutional Thought, 1150 to 1650. It's a slim but well-packed volume. The thesis of it is this, that contrary to what uh, racism, which is the only way to describe it, has said, we did not get our free institutions and uh, constitutionalism from the old Germanic tribes. It is not a Teutonic inheritance. This is totally a myth. The concept of constitutionalism took its modern form. Some ascribe it to ancient Israel and the fact of the law. But his concern is with the medieval development. In the Middle Ages, the conciliar movement, the demand for an ecumenical council to govern the papacy, came to a head in the Council of Constance, which ended the schism and the reign of three popes instead of one. In the process, legal minds set to work to develop a constitution, a law code, an overriding law that would govern the whole of the church. Out of this came the development of constitutional thought. This was finally rejected in the church, but it exercised its leaven in the state. And step by step, the concept of constitutionalism was made a part of the life of the state, not without conflict, as he recognizes, but emphatically uh, made a part of the thinking of the West. One of the things that... Uh, gave the Protestant countries the edge was that Calvinistic political theology in particular took over the kind of thinking the medieval uh, conciliar theorists had developed. And they, as a result, gave rise in uh, Britain and this country and in some other countries as well to the kind of constitutional thinking uh, we today recognize as so important uh, to our thinking. In the course of his analysis, Tierney also deals with the concept of corporation law, that is, laws governing the idea of a corporation, the meaning of jurisdiction, and also the conflict which has developed and which was implicit from the beginning 
between the ideas of sovereignty and federalism. And we can say that in this country the conflict is a very critical one. The Constitution deliberately made no reference to sovereignty. It was regarded as an alien concept, as one that properly could be attributed to God alone. However, beginning with John Marshall, the idea of sovereignty was introduced into our law. Since Woodrow Wilson, in particular, the concept of sovereignty, federal sovereignty in particular, has become very powerful, and the result is that constitutionalism has suffered, because there is a conflict between the idea of constitutionalism, which is the rule of law, and sovereignty, because a sovereign cannot be bound by law. A sovereign is the lawmaker. Law is under the sovereign, not over him. This is why we believe that God alone is the Lord or sovereign. All law must proceed from God. And because we have adopted the concept of sovereignty, constitutionalism is receding. And the Constitution has become a rubber yardstick which is used very freely by the courts to mean whatever the sovereign chooses to make it mean. Sovereignty and constitutionalism cannot work together. Well, on to another book, a very interesting book by Charles W. Adams, published by Euro-Dutch Publishers in Curaçao, but available from Euro-Dutch Publishers, P.O. Box 1070, Buffalo, New York, 14221. It was published in 1982, and the price is $35. Very little has been written in English on taxation, on the nature and history of taxation. A book some years ago in the last century by Seligman is the only one of consequence that I have any knowledge of. This book by Adams is an excellent one, given one critical fault. He is uh, an idolater who, <laughs> like so many others, makes a great deal of the Greeks and their supposed uh, superiority. Well, uh, there was a great deal wrong with Greek culture. And by the way, while I'm on the subject, let me add that uh, economists also make a great deal to do over the Greeks and the fact that coinage was first of all established by the Greeks, gold and silver coins, and that on the whole they maintained, which is true, their coinage successfully on a hard uh, metallic basis over the generations. As a result, they are highly commended. But we have to understand the historical context. Hard metallic money prevailed previously. 
It goes all the way back, for example, in the biblical faith to Moses. Because in God's law, we are told, just weights and just measures shall he have. And the primary reference of this was to money, gold and silver. The shekel in the Bible is not a coin. It is a weight, a weight of gold and a weight of silver. Thus, gold and silver cross borders in antiquity because it was by weight. This biblical concept was, by the way, adopted in this country so that our coinage was in terms of the ounce. The $20 gold piece, or double eagle, was one ounce, 90% fine in its gold content. And all the lesser gold coins were fractions of an ounce. This is one reason why in the Orient, with its experience with bad money, American gold was so highly uh, prized. And uh, you will often see that uh, the double eagles will vary in their prices. The Liberty Heads occasionally will be higher in price and the uh, St. Gaudens uh, most of the time are higher. Well, for aesthetic reasons, Americans and Europeans prefer the newer uh, St. Gaudens. But the old Liberty Head is prized in Asia where it was known throughout the last century and until fairly recent years. So whenever there has been a crisis in the Orient, as with the fall of China, and with a crisis in Indochina, and the various parts of it, as Thailand and uh, uh, Vietnam and so on. Throughout Asia, whenever there is a crisis and a rush to gold, it is the old liberty head that is preferred. Well, I digressed a bit there, but to get back to my point, the Greeks first began coining gold and silver instead of relying on weight. And they had a purpose in that, and for evidence of this, I refer you to M.I. Finley, F-I-N-L-E-Y, The Ancient Economy, which was published by the University of California Press in 1973 and a paperback in 1974, so that I doubt that it is still available. However, what Finley pointed out in his book on the ancient economy was that the Athenians decreed and others copied them that only their coins were to be current for all purposes within the Athenian Empire. So it wasn't gold and silver that was uh, approved of in Greek coinage. It was only the gold and silver that had the stamp of the state. So we owe one of the worst aspects of coinage to the Greeks, not the best. In fact, 
in this country until well after the Civil War, any private party could coin money if he followed the standard weight. And here in California, a great deal of California gold was coined. Most of it was in bars that bore a denomination giving the exact weight and $20 or $100, as the case may be. The only ones that were coined were the uh, coinage under a dollar. A dollar and under, very small coins, were made. However, the federal government outlawed that. So that uh, the biblical pattern began to end there. So the Greek coinage was not an advance in monetary history. It was a very, very serious retreat. Uh, Adams is not only uh, off base in an excellent book, let me stress that, excellent book, with regard to the Greeks, but to the history of the early church in relationship to this matter. Because the church fathers had a great deal to say on the subject, and he simply passes over it as though it were a lapse in the history of man. Let me call attention to what one of the church fathers, Tertullian, in his apology had to say. Tertullian said that the direct tax on man was slavery. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. What does it mean? You can have taxes on things, and you can have taxes on people. If you tax tobacco, well, you can smoke or not, so you pay the tax only because you choose to. If you tax liquor, well, you can cut back on your drinking or become a prohibitionist. If you tax food, well, you can grow your own. In other words, taxes on things are different. They tax consumption, and you can govern your consumption or reorder it. But if it's a tax on you as a person and what you have because your property is an extension of your person, you can't escape it. You're being taxed. You're being put in bondage. And this, unfortunately, is an aspect of the uh, study by Adams that he doesn't deal with because he is not familiar with either the Bible or church history. However, I will say this, he is uh, thoroughly fair to one of the more abused figures of history, Constantine. He does call attention to Constantine's return to the gold standard. In fact, the whole of the establishment of the Eastern Empire was a very important step that historians neglect. Uh, Constantine, by the way, seized the gold from the pagan temples and melted it down for coinage, and he put Rome on a gold standard. 
he moreover chose as the new capital, as a second capital, what we now know as Constantinople, or Byzantium then. By choosing Constantinople, he chose an economically sound location, one which would enable the empire to flourish, to further a sound economy. Now, I've never known historians or who write lives of Constantine deal with the wisdom of Constantine in these and other matters. Adams quotes him uh, as dealing with some of the practices that preceded him. And I quote, Emperor Constantine abolished torture, crucifixion, and tax informers. He considered tax informing as a more evil practice than crucifixion. In A.D. 313 he ordained, quote, the greatest scourge of mankind, the detestable race of tax informers, must be stopped. We must stifle it in its first efforts and tear out the pernicious tongue of envy. Let not the judges receive the information of the informer. Let them be given up to punishment as soon as any of them appear." Unquote. Constantine's decree should be of special interest to lawyers. Here is the first historical account of the use of the exclusionary rule, which forbids the use of evidence obtained by unlawful search, even if the evidence is reliable. The evidence is excluded to discourage unlawful police activity. Until 1962, Canada did not utilize this rule. When a police system disciplines itself, the rule is unnecessary. It is certainly not in the public interest." Unquote. There are many other aspects of Constantine's rule that are not dealt with by historians. They simply cannot forgive Constantine for having turned Christian and having worked to make Rome Christian. That is, for most historians, the unpardonable sin. And as a result, you can read book after book about Constantine with nothing about his policy of religious freedom, nothing about his, his knowledge of economic principles, which everyone else in Rome had all but forgotten. Well, another thing uh, that uh, Adams calls attention to is the beginnings of the war in 1860, the Civil War. And what he does point out is that the origins of it were not slavery, Lincoln did not get elected on an abolitionist plank. He made it clear he did not favor it. The issue was taxation, in particular the tariff. The North wanted a tariff that would have penalized the South 
bitterly, and they resented it. And the interesting fact which he points out and which very few histories do, we are familiar with the brutal exercise of power by Lincoln in such cases as Clement Vallandigham, who was a Democrat in Ohio. He was arrested for attacking Lincoln's war and income tax policies. We are told by history books that he was called a copperhead, that he was a uh, supposed sympathizer with the South, and so on and so forth, all of which was nonsense. He did denounce the war. But, and as... Adams points out, he called Lincoln a dictator and denounced his income tax policy in these words, quote, through a tax law the like of which has never been imposed upon any but a conquered people. They, the Republicans, have possession of the entire property of the people of the country, unquote. And Adams says Lincoln reacted with a fury. Mind you, this was a political rally of the Democratic Party. It wasn't the first time a U.S. president had been called a tyrant by the opposition. There was nothing in Vallandigham's sharp remarks that was not part of the rough and tumble of American politics. But Vallandigham was arrested and charged before a military court in Ohio. Even those civilian courts were opened and Ohio was not a war zone. The military court found him guilty of expressing treasonable sentiments. Rather than have Vallandigham locked up or shot, Lincoln had him forcibly exiled to the South. He wasn't a Southerner, so Vallandigham fled to Canada, and from there he was able to get the Democratic Convention in 1864 to brand the War of Failure. His conviction by a military court for expressing treasonable sentiments is akin to Soviet practices today. Solzhenitsyn was thrown out of the Soviet Union for the same reason that Lincoln threw Vallandigham out of the U.S. Just imagine the Soviets can use Abraham Lincoln as authority for deporting Solzhenitsyn and other Russian dissidents. Lincoln did not stand alone in his harsh policies or stern tax measures. The president of the Southern Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, was attacked by Southerners with the same vehemence. End of quote. It is interesting that the Southerners, when they created the Confederacy, had volunteers galore until they passed the draft. Then Southerners spent their time evading the draft and evading taxes, the heavy taxes that were imposed, because they felt they were getting the same kind of treatment they had rebelled against. They did not want a strong, powerful central government. Well, another book that I just read 
is H.R. Loyne, L-O-Y-N, The Governance of Anglo-Saxon England, 500 to 1087, published this year, 1984, by Stanford University Press. In passing, uh, Dr. Loyne reminds us that in looking at English history, we have to realize that within a short period of time, England suffered two great invasions. We think of the Norman conquest of 1066, but we forget that half a century earlier in 1016, the Danes took England. So it was a very difficult century for the English. However, the main emphasis of this book is on another fact, and it is on the development and the government of England. And he says in the beginning, and I quote, recognition of the simple fact that permanent government was predominantly the creation of the kings and of the church as determined the shape of this book, unquote. This is a fact too seldom pointed out, that kings and the church together created the governments of Western Europe. And the concept of government that they had in mind was thoroughly Christian. Do you remember the fact that, uh, for example, Charlemagne had Alcuin and other scholars around him? He was not alone in that. And the reason was that, as Dr. Loyne points out, on both sides of the channel, this faith was held, and I quote, The king was to be a doctor, a teacher to his people, as well as a dukes, a war leader. In a letter to an English king, Alcuin associated a people's luck, its success in war, the wealth of harvests, its freedom from plague, with the king's personal morals and behavior. In a fine rhetorical passage, he asserted that the goodness of the king represented the prosperity of all the people, because the justice of princes is the exaltation of the people. The summons of papal legates, the holding of great church councils under royal patronage, the creation of a new archbishopric at Lichfield, and the unction given to his son Egfrith all indicate Ophaz, King Ophah is the reference, anxiety to benefit from and to work with the church. The theory of the monarchy benefited greatly from the period of Mercian dominance. And of course, Alfred made biblical law the law of the land. So we have an important aspect of the origins of civil government in the Western world 
discussed by Loin. This is why, no matter what some of the current uh, political pundits in the media tell us, you're not going to separate religion from politics in the United States. Not only from our European heritage, but in terms of our Puritan heritage. The two are inseparable, both in terms of Catholic and Protestant traditions. You cannot in the Western world separate religion and civil government. It cannot be done. The only thing that happens is that when the faith dies, there's no representation of the Christian position. But the minute the faith revives, there is a confrontation, and it is inescapable. Well, still another book in the same general vein. An interesting study, which uh, is by John A.F. Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Glasgow, and published by Allen and Unwin in London, published in uh, 1980. Popes and Princes, 1417 through 1517, Politics and Polity in the Late Medieval Church. This study is of particular interest in that it deals with a subject that uh, one of my teachers, Dr. Ernst Kantorowicz, in the king's two bodies dealt with. The development of the state into a kind of counterfeit church. As the state began in the late 1200s, early 1300s, to see itself as the controller of the church, and to insist as Philip the Fair led the way in France on a what is known as a Gallican church, a church that is governed by the king and confined to its boundaries with only loose ties with any other bodies or an international center as the Vatican. The state began to see its own nature in terms that copied the church. Thus, the state became the new mystical body. By the 14th century, Italian thought had propounded the idea that a moral and political marriage was contracted between the king and the people, the state. And the idea of the mystical body of the state, the head of which was the prince, began to appear in not only political writings, but some theological writings. So that churchmen were beginning to get the spirit of statism. Uh, Jean 
de Terre Rouge, writing about 1420, was prepared to assert that the king was God on earth and that resistance to him was sacrilegious. This is why some Catholic thinkers went to the other extreme and were ready to call assassination uh, a good act. So you had the idea of a sacral monarchy. And we can see elements of this kind of faith in Joan of Arc as she approached the Dauphin, a very weak, a very, very incompetent person, but viewed by her with religious awe. Moreover, the kings began to feel that they were the only pipeline of grace. In France, again, because France was the center of Europe in those days, by 1443, the king forbade one count to use the title count by the grace of God. Only the king governed by the grace of God. Anyone else governed by his grace. So that the religious character of kingship was pushed to all kinds of extremes. Historians are ready to tell us about the extremes to which some popes, usually weak popes, by the way, who were straining to gain power by claiming more than uh, their predecessors had. Uh, historians tell us how some of these popes claimed so much for the papacy, but they failed to tell us that the kings claimed as much and more routinely. Well, the net result was that in this conflict the very idea of authority began to collapse and there was an anarchy of authority. As Thompson says, and I quote, even after the end of the Basel Schism, there was still persistent ecclesiastical particularism and there was some truth admittedly expressed in rather rhetorical terms in Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini's statement in 1454, Christianity has no head whom all wish to obey. Neither the Pope nor the Emperor is rendered his due. There is no reverence, no obedience. Thus we regard the Pope and Emperor as if they bore false titles and were mere painted objects. Each city has its own king. There are as many princes as there are households. And Thompson continues, such an attitude to the papacy made it easier for men to regard it purely in political terms as a factor to be considered because of the power at its disposal, but without regard to its claim to be inherently different from other powers in virtue of its spiritual rights. This was an easy attitude to take because the popes themselves were uncertain 
of their roles. Unquote. Now to still another book, Philippe Contamines, War in the Middle Ages. Uh, Contamine, C-O-N-T-A-M-I-N-E, published in Britain by Basil Blackwell uh, in 1980. Just very briefly, some points of uh, interest. He points out something we tend to forget. Uh, very few areas of life, he says, are so dominated by tradition as warfare. Military men are usually not innovative. They are profoundly conservative. If they have any ability or intelligence, they want to, because their future depends on it, to conserve life. It's easy to look back and see the great blunders in the Civil War and the Crimean War and elsewhere, and to forget that very often a great deal of hesitation has been shown by military commanders because of their concern for preserving life. And so tradition Fighting the way things were done in the past appeals to them because it's easier to reckon on the costs in terms of human life. Moreover, in the Middle Ages, you had another factor. You had the concern about just war, the treatment of prisoners, the truce of God, and a variety of other steps taken by the church to limit the uh, evils of warfare, to restrict the violence and the destruction on religious grounds. Now, this does not mean that sometimes in a crisis, in a breakdown of law and order, as, for example, in the warfare that Bertrand of Brittany was involved in, which I dealt with over a year and a half ago, with invading forces, the English, firmly entrenched in the land, that incredible savagery did not prevail. But in normal circumstances, a great deal of this was avoided until, as Contamine points out, the rise of the mercenaries, and together with that of popular warfare, people's wars. And he comments, and I'll read these two paragraphs because I think they are telling. The law of arms, the discipline of chivalry, with its more or less self-imposed constraints on combatants, could apply only to armies which were feudal and chiefly recruited from the nobility. But the late Middle Ages saw the appearance of a mass of adventurers who were scarcely amenable to this code. Mercenaries, including the great companies uh, in France and Italy and Germany and so on, they were content to let their bestial and sadistic instincts 
run riot without any restriction, but more importantly, they contributed to a modification of the general atmosphere of war, even when this was waged by the traditional, uh, traditional military cadres. In contrast to aristocratic warfare, which easily changed into a sort of great tourney, half serious, half frivolous, a series of adventures and apertises d'armes sought after and experienced for themselves. The war of communes, popular war, offered behavior that was incontestably more violent. The Flemish communes systematically massacred the vanquished and refused the practice of ransoms, seen by them as cowardly and likely to lead to deception. Inevitably, in battles where they faced the communes, nobles adopted a similar attitude. After the massacre of French knights during the Battle of Courtrai, there was a massacre of Flemish craftsmen at Cassel and Roosbeek. One might link to this style of warfare, devoid of all courtesy, the warlike customs of the Irish and Swiss. The Kriegsordnung of Lucerne in 1499 stipulated that no prisoners were to be taken. All the enemies should be put to death. That of Zurich in 1444 thought it necessary to prohibit combatants from tearing out the hearts of their dead en enemies and cutting up their bodies. Froissart attests for his part that the Irish Never leave a man for dead until they have cut his throat like a sheep and slit open his belly to remove the heart which they take away. Some who know their way say they eat it with great relish. They take no man for ransom. Unquote. Well, this kind of savagery became commonplace everywhere. I don't think, by the way, they had to learn from the Irish or the Swiss. And by the time of the Enlightenment, the nobility again took over warfare. And they developed it into something where when armies opposed each other, it was in uh, Gaston and Alphonse routine. In one case, very famous, where the opposing armies actually uh, each ask the other to take the first shot. And the commanders tried to outdo each other in gallantry. However, those armies were not gentle with the common people. With the rise of the military draft and popular armies, uh, brutality and warfare again became commonplace. And the Soviet armies, humanistic armies to the core, have carried it to the nth degree. Well, another book that I just read recently, George L. Klein, Religious an anti-religious thought in Russia. Klein is spelled K-L-I-N-E. This was published uh, in 1968, 
and is no longer available. But it was in particular a study of Russian religious thought in the last century and up to the revolution. And these uh, thinkers were secular thinkers by and large, men who paved the way for uh, the Marxist order. Uh, some of them were unorthodox religious leaders like Berdyaev, B-E-R-D-Y-A-E-F-V. I like the comment uh, about Berdyaev, who was a brilliant thinker, but uh, highly uh, heretical, I believe, in so many things. Uh, he says on page 90, Berdyaev once called himself using a term originally applied to Nietzsche, an aristocratic radical. And it seems clear that there was something aristocratic about his religious and philosophical attitude. Like Harrison and Leontiev, he found middle-class Philistine existence aesthetically and morally repulsive. As he himself revealingly expressed it, he himself revealingly expressed it, he went through life, quote, holding his nose, unquote combined with a romantic exaltation of creative genius. This aristocratic hauteur found philosophical expression in Berdyaev's central categories of person, spirit, freedom, and creativity, and negatively in his bete noir objectification. End of quote. Well, remember that the next time you find a theologian who thinks very highly of Berdyaev and thinks we should go back to Berdyaev's thinking because what he is espousing is uh, that kind of aristocracy. You find an echo of that coming from a different but parallel tradition the existentialist thought, and there were elements of existentialism in Berdyaev, and those thinkers who talk about the goal of religion and of life to, and of politics to make people truly human. What they're saying is that most of us are really subhuman, and only when we become like them, and only when we go through life holding our nose, and boast about doing so, have we truly become human. <laughs> so much for such people. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, I think is interesting that Klein calls attention to, the Marxist scholars predicted and I quote, that medicine will be able to prolong life almost indefinitely. It is conceivable that even the dream of eternal youth will be realized. That statement is a literal quote from a Marxist scholar, Rozhkov. 
Rojkoff made an even more startling statement, Klein tells us. We mortals may hope to awaken, he went on to say, even from a photograph of a dead person or a fragment of letter, the unique individual formula of a man's electrons. And now here's a literal statement from this Marxist. Men who lived many centuries ago will be resurrected in the chemical laboratory. And of course, they in turn will resurrect those whom they knew and loved. The task of immortality will finally be carried out. We must try to be worthy of future resurrection, unquote. And so on and on. This kind of thinking was uh, taken very seriously. As recently as 1961, a Moscow medical journal repeated this claim that they would, in time, overcome death. And all kinds of extravagant statements of that sort have been made. Well, in my book of a good many years ago, The Mythology of Science, I called attention to the fact that an English scientist had predicted that some billions of years down the road the sun would die, but by that time we would have not only conquered death and conquered the limitations of a body, but we would be able to create a new sun and put it in the skies. That kind of thinking is becoming a little more commonplace. In Science Digest for August 1984 on page 72, there is an excerpt from a book by Hubert Reeves, Atoms of Silence, an Exploration of Cosmic Evolution, published by the MIT Press this year and has been translated also into French. And the title is, Can We Keep the Sun Alive? And it goes into the uh, alternatives, what we can do as the sun begins to flare up into a red giant stage or settles down in a, into a terminal old age. So he gives the alternatives, and he's quite confident that in due time, apparently, we will be able to solve the matter. Well, the sin of man is to be as God, and certainly these people are illustrations of it. Can we keep the sun alive? <laughs> they can't keep their own civilization alive, and they're killing it right now. And we have a responsibility to reconstruct all things in terms of the Word of God. Well, our time is virtually up, uh, but I'd like to call attention to one thing more. This is something that was distributed by the National Labor Relations Board in 1969 and According to Washington Monthly, in a book they put out a few years ago, Inside the System, still in effect. 
Let me read it. It's an administration bulletin to all employees, subject post-attack registration of federal employees. Civil Service Commission instructions require that government agencies remind all employees annually of their responsibilities under the commission-operated registration system. In the event of an attack, a nuclear attack, all National Labor Relations Board employees should follow the procedure outlined below. If you are prevented from going to your regular place of work because of an enemy attack, or you are prevented from reporting to an emergency location, go to the nearest post office. Ask the postmaster for a Federal Employee Emergency Registration Card. Fill it out and return it to him. He will see to it that it is forwarded to the Office of Civil Service Commission, which will maintain a registration file for your area. When your card is received, the Civil Service Commission will notify us, and we can then decide where and when you should report back for work. Another important reason for mailing in your registration card as soon as possible is that it will enable us to keep you on the roster of active employees and enable us to forward your pay, and so on. <laughs> so the bureaucracy is prepared for an all-out nuclear war. They're going to keep everything in order, and they're going to make sure that they have their files. Well, we shall see been good to be with you again, and I'll look forward to our session in two weeks. Thank you, and God bless you.